Welcome to Twirl, the Week in Health Law, the natural fiber podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on April 25th, 2017. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis. And my co-host, who's taking a break from drilling in the street outside his apartment, is... Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. And, and listen to the quiet, Frank. Listen to the quiet. <laughs> Thank goodness, eh? It's a rainy and, day. That's right. And so today we welcome Chiara Bridges, who's professor of law and professor of anthropology at Boston University. Her scholarship focuses on race, class, reproductive rights, and the intersection of the three. Among a number of just excellent publications are her 2011 book, Reproducing Race, an ethnography of pregnancy as a site of racialization and a fascinating new book that we're going to spend most of our time discussing today, uh, courtesy of Stanford Press, entitled The Poverty of Privacy Rights. A big welcome to the pod, Kiara. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on the podcast today. The new book, The Poverty of Privacy Rights, this has several moving theoretical pieces, and at root also is based on some of your field research and sort of narratives. As I started to think about uh, the piece overall, there were there were two sort of core thoughts I, I pulled out. Um, first, what you term the moral construction of poverty, the idea that people are poor because they're lazy, irresponsible, averse to work, promiscuous, and so on. Um, welcome to Medicaid reform. Um, and secondly, that wealth is a condition for privacy rights and that lacking wealth, poor mothers do not have any privacy rights. If I'm right that those are sort of core pieces in your argument, would you sort of flesh them out and sort of take us through the, the arguments in the book? Sure. Yeah. So I start with, I, I, it's a controversial claim. Um, and my claim is that poor mothers don't have any privacy rights. And so this um, changes the the description that, that generally scholars have offered for poor mothers sort of legal um, station in the United States. And so most, I mean, so poor mothers, if you you know, for, for a day, follow them throughout their lives, um, you'll see that they don't enjoy privacy in any real sense of the word. Uh, they are constantly surveilled, <laughs> regulated, um, punished um, by various state actors or constantly checking in with the state, constantly sharing information with the state, etc. And so most scholars who have uh, looked at um, poor mothers' lives have concluded that, you know, they have privacy rights, but their privacy rights are weak, or they're meaningless, or they're constantly violated. And so what I do in this book is to change the, the description. I change, I want to change the conversation. Um, and my strong argument is that poor mothers actually do not have any rights. They have been informally disenfranchised of those rights. Um, and so um, that allows us to analogize their situation of rightlessness to other groups um, in the past that previous, you know, have not had rights. And so and I think it, it makes us less um, sanguine about the president. It makes us less um, um, comfortable with our socio-political legal um, situation in which a group um, does not have rights that other folks are guaranteed. Um, and so the moral construction of poverty um, plays a big role in my argument because um, the moral construction of poverty generally is an understanding of poverty that explains poverty um, in terms of poor people's moral failures. And so the um, idea is that people are poor not because of structural reasons, people are poor not because the economy 
economy has contracted in such a way that makes um, middle wage jobs um, available that pay a, a wage that can support a family. Um, people are not poor because of immigration policies or mass incarceration or criminal justice. So the more construction of poverty rejects all the sort of large scale explanations of poverty and instead says people are poor because they're lazy um, or because they have um, an inability to delay gratification or because they're criminally inclined or because they're promiscuous or because et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so um, I ex- use the moral construction of poverty to explain poor mothers' disenfranchisement um, because if poor mothers are poor because there's something wrong with them um, and if poor mothers by definition are pregnant or parenting, then their moral failures are implicating another party. Their moral failures are implicating um, the children that they're carrying or that they're caring for. Um, and so the moral construction of poverty justifies um, invading privacy. Um, it justifies the state's omnipresence um, in poor mother's lives um, because the state now has a perennial, um, daily, banal justification for um, being present in their lives in as much as the state can seek to protect their children. So that's kind of the um, the over, that's the, that's the book in a nutshell. <laughs> that's going to be on the back of the paperback. Which, <laughs> right, exactly. Presumably. <laughs> so the examples of questions asked of poor mothers that you give in the book, they're from Medicaid examples. Now, given that context, your points about the interrogation of vulnerable populations and the whole subtext of sort of the undeserving poor uh, are obviously incredibly well made. Increasingly, however, aren't we not asking similar questions of all patients? Um, Indeed, under uh, the Meaningful Use Program, for example, certain uh, uh, social determinants of health uh, questions have to be asked. And the IOM has recommended the capture of several non-clinical domains, um, We already capture alcohol use, race and ethnicity, residential address, tobacco use and exposure. But now that's being broadened out to collect data about income, depression, education, financial resource strain, going directly to some of the questions that you had problems with in the Medicaid context, intimate partner violence, social connections, stress, and so on. Is is there any way to make this class and race neutral? Or is that impossible with sort of the power disparities and lack of choice that you you uh, obviously uh, bring you bring with us to the Medicaid context? Yeah, so um, I think it'll be interesting to see whether in the future we'll witness a democratization of the type of treatment that poor folks now experience. I'm actually skeptical that those with um, wealth and privilege and social capital will tolerate uh, the kind of invasions that poor mothers experience. And when that treatment isn't tolerated, then we'll see whether their rights um, are strong enough to fight the invasions that poor mothers um, have to endure now. I mean, so the, the, the thing is, is that my first encounter with the Medicaid apparatus came, you know, when I was conducting research for my first book. And it was shocking because I, I mean, I've always gone to the doctor. I've, all, I've always had private medical um, insurance, private health care. Um, and so it was really this incredible disconnect between what I was used to experiencing as a, you know, m- 
middle, middle class, privately insured patient. And what I saw being handed down as a matter of law to, to poor populations. Um, and so, and of course, that's made me very uh, aware of my experiences at the doctor now because I, I keep seeing this 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 uh, possibility for convergence between the, the two populations, but it's never realized in practice. I mean, so I recently started um, I recently started going to a new doctor, um, and they gave me it was a it was a nice very nice doctor, um, and they gave me an iPad where I was filling out my medical history, um, and so you know I'm clicking through the screens. Um, and then I get to this one screen and it said the next, you know, couple of questions are about, you know, social issues. Um, if you don't feel comfortable at, um, answering these questions, you know, you can click, click no here. If you're comfortable answering these questions, click yes. So now I'm curious. I click yes. And this next series of um, questions were about intimate violence, about sexual violence, about um, drug use and, and, and abuse and addiction. So these are all questions that are, you know, incredibly important for quality healthcare delivery, but they're made option optional to me um, as a privately insured patient. And for poor mothers, that is just not an option. I mean, so as a condition of Medicaid receipt, poor mothers have to answer these questions. And I'm sure a lot of them do. A lot of them, the ones that I encountered in the hospital, they were happy to receive help around intimate violence, sexual violence, drug use, abuse, and addiction, etc. But there are a lot of other folks who I met who were uncomfortable answering these questions, especially because their healthcare workers had such a fraught relationship with them because these are these are folks who have a duty to report to the state. They have a duty to open um, child protective services investigations. They have, you know, they're not exactly entirely um, in their corner. Um, they have a duty to basically betray their confidences um, because they are state actors. So I, I again, like I said, I think it's really interesting um, that these domains or what I witnessed in the in the public health care. Um, context might be transporting themselves to the private healthcare context, but I'm really skeptical about whether um, wealthier folks will allow their privacy to be invaded in the way that poor mothers' um, privacy is invaded at present. There's a really interesting question here about many of the new forms of data collection and to what extent the existing treatment of marginalized, disadvantaged groups signifies a canary in the coal mine for the rest of the population, or to what extent will sort of the rollout of a lot of this sort of big data gathering, social determinants of health gathering, further stratify and entrench uh, existing inequalities? And I'm wondering, you know, along those lines, um, I just thought that, you know, in reading the uh, uh, introduction that you shared with us in terms of the, the incredible intrusiveness of the data gathering by some of the caseworkers here, if you could give our, our listeners a sense of just how far this goes in terms of you know, like asking about old boyfriends, new boyfriends, to what extent is relationship serious, to what extent does you say you're the new boyfriend of the poor mother have a steady job, etc. Um, how is this framed in these contexts and how is this justified as a matter of law, this type of interrogation? The interrogations are justified um, in terms of the desire to protect the fetus and the baby once born. Um, so, you know, there are all sorts of, you know, empirical data that you can find that indicates that if um, a child is living with a man who is not 
um, his or her biological father, then um, there's an increased risk for abuse, um, sexual, physical. Um, so there, there are a lot of indications, like, as, I mean, which is to say that the questions that are asked of poor mothers are not um, just, you know, pulled out of thin air, like there are reasons for it. And, and, and I also think that the, um, the, the legislators and the policymakers who designed these policies um, did not have bad intent. Um, what becomes a little bit more insidious um, is that these questions aren't asked as a matter of course to poor mothers. I'm sorry, to, to wealthier mothers. Um, wealthier mothers, there isn't a bureaucratic um, apparatus that's erected that wealthier mothers have to navigate in order to um, get prenatal care. And so what the result is that poor mothers are screened for all of, you know, for intimate violence, for sexual abuse, for drug use, abuse, addiction, for employee, you know, what kind of job do you have? How steady is this job? How steady is the job that your partner has? Um, how long you guys been together, um, <laughs> et cetera. Poor mothers have are screened for all of that. And all of this information is gathered um, all in the interest of protecting children. Meanwhile, wealthier mothers, mothers with private insurance don't have that sort of screening as a matter of course. Um, and so eventually you find what you expect to find. Poor mothers are, you know, neglecting their children at higher rates. They're abusing their children at higher rates. But part of that um, statistic is a result of the absence of information um, that we have because private mothers um, or privately insured women are not screened in the same ways. So um, I think that, so, I mean, so two solutions that I see, um, one is to change the moral construction of poverty. We have to defeat the moral construction of poverty because if we stop blaming people for their indigence, we would stop assuming that only the poor are failing their children. Um, and so I, I imagine that our healthcare systems would look different um, if we had different assumptions around um, why people are poor and why people allow their poverty to intersect with their motherhood and their maternity and their parenthood. Um, but the second solution that I see um, is to, I mean, I think that, that the two solutions are related in as much as if we, we rid ourselves of the moral construction of poverty, um, we would actually um, apply the same systems to all folks without respect to income levels, without respect to whether they rely on public insurance or private insurance. Um, and so then there would be an equality of treatment because I really do feel like if we are really concerned about protecting children, um, then we would be screening all people who have children in their care for what appear to be risk factors when you look at the empirical data. So I think that an equality of treatment, well, the equality of treatment will, one, you know, avoid the discursive damage that's done when poor people are treated as sort of dangers to the body politic and to their children. But secondly, I think that it will allow for proper bureaucracies um, to be developed because it would be bureaucracies that all are engulfed in and not just the most marginalized um, and vulnerable populations. Yes. And, you know, I could, I could think of a relatively straightforward analog in all of our experiences being something like TSA screening, right? It's sort of, it's not, uh, it's allocated to everybody. It's enforced on everyone. It's not necessarily, there's some sort of uh, pre-screening. And I think your work also really interestingly intersects here with the current debate on predictive policing, where the argument of a lot of activists is that predictive policing algorithms are based on data that was accumulated over decades where there was racialized 
centralized allocation of police forces to certain uh, parts of the city. And of course, you know, just like with the old metaphor, old story about if you look under the lampposts, you know, when you lose your keys, if you're looking in one particular area, that's where you're going to find the crime and the problems. So I do think that, you know, that is a really uh, interesting exception in documentation or an interesting documentation uh, an application of a lot of concerns that are going on in parallel fields in criminal justice, um, fraud detection, etc. I also just wanted to shift the conversation a bit to connecting this to your uh, prior book, The Reproducing Race, where you talk about the racialization of the wily patient and the welfare queen. And I'm just thinking about this in terms of, is the, the new book about the poverty of privacy rights in a way showing that very well-intentioned programs of, say, wraparound care, uh, monitoring, public health surveillance, etc., if they're not deployed right, will just end up contributing to the reproduction of disadvantage rather than alleviating. So um, I just want to, yeah, the description that you offer in my work, Frank, is precisely um, how I understand um, what I'm doing um, with my ethnography and with my um, legal analyses. So, you know, I don't understand, I don't think that policymakers are racist, I don't think they're classist, I don't think they're um, sexist or xenophobic. Um, I rather simply think that they don't know what their policies um, look like on the ground. And so I understand my work to be an illumination of what policies, which are well-intentioned and are actually indicated by the data, um, what those policies look like when they intersect with, when they interact with the racial discourses that circulate in our society, the discourses around sex and gender and when people ought to get pregnant and ought to become parents. Um, discourses around class and immigration um, and proper immigrants and, and who deserves um, government assistance and who doesn't deserve government assistance. Um, so, so when policies, which again are well-intentioned, interact with those messy cultural discourses, it makes a mess of the policies. And so um, in an ideal world, I imagine my um, policies to be this, this dialectic relationship relationship between policy creation, policy implementation, um, and policy reevaluation in light of the policy's implementation. So um, ideally, policies would be generated by policymakers, um, give, you know, in light of the available data, um, and then those policies would be implemented. And then the implementation, what it looks like on the ground, um, that information would be given back to policymakers so that they can reevaluate the policies in light of the implementation, in light of the fact that policies are necessarily implemented um, in in cultural contexts and social contexts where all these other discourses are circulating. Um, and so the policies would be reevaluated, redesigned, re-implemented, and then the evaluation would happen again. So there would be this dialectic relationship um, because right now that's not happening. And I think it's making a mess of the policies. Um, the, the goals that these policies are designed to achieve are not getting realized. Um, and as you mentioned, Frank, it's, it's um, reiterating these problematic discourses around race, around class, around gender, sex, immigration, etc. So yes, everything that you said um, is how I imagine um, my work to be. So you imagine a sophisticated sort of feedback loop as a, as a, as a lever to try and 
uh, improve things. And indeed, I mean, you, as you say, you're, you're not really identifying bad intent, although I suppose there is some out there as well sometimes. But in, um, in her book, Just Medicine, Dana Matthew argued that implicit bias is primarily responsible for health disparities. So I'm assuming that you're sort of on board with that idea and you see the privacy issues you raise in terms of unconscious classism and or racism. But Matthew takes the position that we need, I think, more than feedback loops to deal with implicit bias and and is looking for legal remedies. Yeah, I think Dana um, Matthew's book is just so wonderful. And I agree with her on most everything that she argues in that in that book. Um, I am not as big of a believer in implicit bias, I believe, or or the work that implicit bias does to produce um, racial disparities in health and other disparities in health that we that are so well documented. Um, I, I, I mean, I definitely think there's a role um, with that implicit bias plays a role. But I also believe that the biases about which we're conscious <laughs> are super important as well. I mean, we, I, I believe that um, we have store, I mean, there are polls that I, that I, that I cite in the book in which people um, give their, you know, how they believe poverty ought to be explained. Um, the people believe that poverty is best explained as a result of not working hard enough as opposed to um, these, things that are outside of people's control. Um, and so I think that there's sort of, um, and these are accepted views, right? It's, it's not like folks are, you know, admitting to things that are, that society has uh, condemned as outside the the realm of appropriate beliefs. You know, we're not asking whether people believe that Black folks are biologically inferior to whites. Like, no, folks are, are articulating beliefs that are well accepted. And it's just that if folks just work hard enough, um, if they don't have sex before marriage, if they don't become pregnant before marriage, if they just go to school, the wonderful schools that are necessarily available to them, um, then all would be right in the world. And so um, I think that those conscious biases um, go a long way towards our, the or the political acceptability of the systems that we have erected. So I think there's a role for the individual and in where my point of disagreement, small, my point of disagreement with Matthews might just be in, you know, the the role that implicit versus, you know, explicit conscious bias plays. Um, but my my bigger intervention or my the focus of my work is is actually structural. Um, I try not to pay too much attention um, to the individuals operating within the structures only because um, I mean, so Matthews relies on some really wonderful empirical data um, around um, implicit bias and the you know implicit association tests and things like that to um, really make convincing her point that implicit bias play, goes a long way towards explaining racial disparity in health. I don't utilize that same data in my research. I actually utilize what I see, what I observe, you know, as a, as an anthropologist and as an ethnographer. Um, so I have been because of my discipline, I'm more interested in the things that I observe, and I observe the structures. Um, and I think the biggest determinant. Um, 
of why our healthcare systems look the way that they do, why Medicaid looks the way that it does, and why my wonderful private health insurance looks the way that it does, is because they are taking care of two different populations. And one population is woefully, politically, economically, socially, culturally disempowered. Um, and so my solution is less in um, ridding institutions of implicit bias, or rather ridding individuals of implicit biases or making their biases um, aware to them or, you know, explicit to them um, or anything like that. Um, my solution is really in equality. And I think equal treatment, equal systems um, for everyone who needs healthcare in the U.S. would go a long way towards um, ridding the systems designed for poor people of their more invidious um, and undesirable qualities. And I wanted to ask a question now on a methodological level about the Wyman uh, case, Wyman v. James on uh, page 8 of the manuscript, where you discuss Justice Marshall's dissent in this 1971 case. Essentially, the Supreme Court upheld suspicionless searches of the homes of poor mothers receiving welfare assistance, and Justice Marshall gave, I think, a very persuasive and powerful dissent, saying these are these crimes of abuse and exploitation are not confined to indigent, indigent households, so why are you upholding these searches? And I if I have to imagine what the majority might say back to him, I imagine they might resort to some law and economics cost-benefit type of analysis that would say, well, here's we have limited resources and this is how we have to allocate them. Uh, this is where the risks are highest, et cetera, at least according to our models, if not empirical data. And then I think, you know, if Justice Marshall had your work, uh, Kiara, I think he would be able to point and say, well, economics is not the only social science. There's this great work by an anthropologist that really gets into the phenomenology and the lived experience and thick description of what it is like to experience this type of scrutiny uh, in one's life. And that should count just as much. And I'm wondering if, if that's your sense that, you know, health law in general may be a bit tilted toward economic approaches and that what we really need now now are some more anthropological or other forms of qualitative social science to uh, balance the picture we're getting. I wish Justice Marshall could read my work. (laughs) (laughs) That would be great. I was sort of thinking of some of the Chicago school stuff, like out of Lior Strahilovitz's work and others, which has, you know, consistently tried to push forward scrutiny as helping minority groups. A lot of his argument is that the more information we know about uh, racial minorities, um, other disadvantaged groups, the better they will be treated by government and business. I really enjoy reading um, Strahilovic's work, but I take on some of his arguments in my informational um, privacy chapter. To the point about the um, methodological or my methodological intervention, I I certainly believe that that anthropology, qualitative research, um, just generally can add so much to the questions that are being asked with the various studies that are being conducted around disparities in health and, and social determinants of health and, th- and things like that. I sort of envision the various methods available to us as a toolbox. And I think that certain tools are appropriate for certain tasks. And so if you're interested, if the task involves identifying causal relationships, well, you know, anthropology is woefully unsuited. That's 
like, you know, taking a hammer and trying to screw in um, a nail. Like hammers don't do, you know, hammers aren't really good at screwing in nails. Um, and so the empirical data that can, uh, or the empirical methods that can isolate variables and manipulate variables and identify causal relationships, well, you know, those are the tools that one ought to use when you're looking for um, causation. Um, but anthropology is a tool that is, I think, ideal for illuminating how policies are lived, right? Like folks' phenomenological experience with things that look great on paper. Um, and I think we ought to be interested in it. <laughs> I think we ought to be interested in how people are, are living these interventions because their living of these interventions are producing them as disaffected members of the body politic. Um, they experience these laws as evidence that they are not equal, <laughs> that they are not as important um, as the folks going to the private hospitals down the street that don't take Medicaid. They're experiencing, um, they're getting this very clear message about the quality of their citizenship and the fact that it's not valued as highly as other folks' citizenship. And we need to be interested in that. Um, if we are a country that prides itself on diversity and inclusion, um, and democracy and participation, um, then we ought to be interested in the laws that are that you know are alienating folks from this democratic project. Um, so, and I don't think I don't think that a lot of the more quantitative social science can get at that. I'm not sure. I mean, they might answer the questions that I'm as answering um, about what these laws look like on the ground. They might answer them, but they'll answer them in a way that doesn't illuminate the same um, aspects of the question that that anthropology does. So I would love to see more anthropology out there. I don't think that anthropology is self-sufficient. Like, I don't think that is the only, that is the science that, the only science that we need. But I also don't, I feel like a lot of quantitative science is also insufficient. It's not self-sufficient. It's not the only science that we need. And so these are, I imagine, complementary relationships between the qualitative work that I do and the quantitative work that other scholars are doing. Yes, I think that that methodological pluralism is really uh, well advised and I'm very much hoping that the legal system and legal academy are going to be uh, drawing on it. And so for a, a final question, which I really want to loop back to your earlier point about the informational privacy chapter and just give the listeners a sense of this work by Lior Strahilovitz and, and I'd love to hear your response to it, which is, you know, it does seem as though a lot of folks in the traditional Chicago school crowd want to see less privacy or at least more data sharing I mean, certainly it was a theme of some of Posner's work. And in Strahilovitz's work, his main argument is that when minority groups face discrimination, to the extent that bosses, employers, landlords, colleges, all sorts of decision makers can get more information about them, the more information, the better, because it will allow people within the discriminated against class to demonstrate that they have not engaged in conduct that is the stereotypical believed about uh, conduct attributed to the group. Uh, and one concrete example of that is on ban the box. You know, there are lots of municipalities that would not allow app applicants or allow uh, employers to ask applicants about whether they had been in jail or arrested. Um, and Strahilovitz's argument is that if you don't allow that information, then a lot of employers are going to assume the worst about the people they'd naturally discriminated against. I'm wondering how your ethnographic research leads you to view this type of model of more information leading to uh, better outcomes for the marginalized. So again, I, I'm a big fan of Sir Hilovitz's work, and I think that um, 
this work allows us to think about the problems differently. I think that there was kind of like a, a consensus that was generating that more privacy is good. And so he challenges that. And I think it's wonderful to be challenged. Um, but my first response to Sir Helovitz's um, argument is that, you know, poor mothers are living <laughs> the the solution that he proposes. Like poor, poor mothers are living the um, world of no privacy. Um, they're living this like system where in order to distinguish yourself as not the bad mother, right? Like as not the one that's abusing her child or not the one that is uh, using drugs or not the one that's involved in an intimate relationship with a person who's abusing her. Um, they're all their privacy is just gone. And so I think that Shahilovitz just ignores the sort of dignity denying <laughs> aspects of this world, um, especially in light of the inequality. Um, and so one thing that, um, you know, with Strahilovitz's proposal is that kind of like the disadvantaged groups are the ones that have to live with no privacy, right? So um, white uh, applicants for a job, for, for example, one of his um, his examples, you know, is, is the felon um, ban the box thing. And he's like, all right, we just need to share information around past um, convictions so that Black folks can, can demonstrate, they can perform um, non-felon status and that information is available and so they can get hired. Um, but the thing is that white people don't have to um, disavow felon status. Um, women don't have to disavow felon status. It's only Black people, Black men specifically, um, who have to do that. And there's something kind of dignity denying around a group having to disavow their association with a problematized category. And so in my work, poor mothers have to disavow that, you know, that they're a member of a problematized group and the problematized group being, you know, abusive or neglectful parents. Privately insured women don't have to do that, that disavow vowel. <laughs> they don't have to share information to demonstrate that they're not using drugs or they're not, you know, involved in a, you know, abusive domestic relationship. They don't have to do that. And so there's only one group that has to, um, disavow any property that um, privacy that they have in order to um, disavow any connection to a problematized status. And so I think there's something incredibly problematic about that. And also, Strahilovic doesn't interrogate is why certain statuses are the stuff of interest, right? So why is it that um, employers want so badly not to hire felons? Um, like what what is what is the um, base of that aversion um, and so I think that race and class and gender go a long way towards explaining the base of that aversion felon status is one that is disproportionately occupied by men of color usually poor men of color and I so I think that's part of the reason why that that status is something that employers have wanted to um, avoid um, and so this you know sharing or 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 I don't know not enjoying privacy as a means of avoiding discrimination because employers want to avoid hiring problem problematized groups. I don't think it really answers the question of why certain groups are more problematized than than others. Um, it's so it's so he proposes 
lack of privacy as a solution to kind of racism and classism and sexism. Um, but it actually isn't getting at the racism and classism and sexism um, at all. It's just kind of an in run around it. And so, you know, maybe there's a place for it. But I also think that we should be very much aware of what happens to people when they have to constantly disassociate themselves from a problematized group, a group that's problematized in part because of the race, class, gender characteristics of the group. Um, and then also we have to be aware that this is the, you know, lack, not enjoying privacy is not at all solving the racism and classism and sexism and other things um, that have made it necessary for some groups to avoid association with these um, groups. And that was The Week in Health Lore. Big thank you to Professor Bridges for joining us. Great fun, Kiara. Many thanks. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on the show. It was a really wonderful conversation. We post our show notes at Tool.com. I'm at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank? I am at Frank Pasquale on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. <laughs>